are listening to New City Servant Podcast. We hope you're empowered and challenged as we root deep into God's word in order that we might grow in the good news of King Jesus and live as faithful citizens of his kingdom right here in our city. Let's get into the scriptures now. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not about what we do, but about what Jesus has. All right. Christianity is not our approach to, about our approach to God through good works, but about God's approach to us through, yeah, last week you didn't get it, you got it this week. Last week we looked at the Apostle Paul's story and how much the gospel influenced his story and changed the trajectory of his life and how he defended the truth of the gospel and how he saw that the gospel was God's one message to all people. That's what we looked at last week. And this week we're going to be looking at uh, the gospel as good news for this life. And I'll explain what that means, good news for this life. But let me pray for us and then we'll get into God's word. Jesus, we are in desperate need again to see us from your perspective. We often go through this life defining ourselves and getting our identity from things we can't control and things that fade and things that change instead of your unchanging work for us on the cross. And so we pray that you would help us see ourselves through your eyes today. And then as we see ourselves through your eyes, we might see each other through your eyes and we might see the unbelievable relevance of the gospel, not just for the next life, but for this life. And all God's people said, Galatians 2, we're on verse 9 and we're going to go through 21. When James, Cephas, and John, that's James, Peter, and John, those recognized as pillars acknowledged the grace that had been given to me, that's Paul, they gave the right hand of fellowship to me and Barnabas, agreeing that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They asked only that we would remember the poor, which I made every effort to do. But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For he regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. However, when they came, he withdrew and separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision party. Then the rest of the Jews, that's those who are Jewish Christians, joined his hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I told Cephas in front of everyone, if you who are a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And yet, because we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we ourselves have believed in Christ Jesus. This was so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. But if we ourselves are also found to be sinners while we seek, are seeking to be justified by Christ, is Christ then a promoter of sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild those things that I tore down, I show myself to be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ 
and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. The word of God. What would you say, what would you say if your friend asked you what your favorite thing about New City was? What would you tell them? Would you tell them it's the friendships or the music or you like the location? What, what would you say? That's an easier question. But what would you say if it wasn't your friend? Let's just say that you were out in front of the building on a Sunday morning and someone drove up to the church and kind of rolled down their window while you're outside and said, hey, what does your church believe? That actually happened to Virginia last Sunday. She was out front and she, I don't know what you were doing out there, but while she was out there, someone came up and said, hey, what, what kind of church is this? What, kind of, what does this church believe? And she said, the gospel of Jesus. We believe the gospel of Jesus, which I was like, hey, that's a 10 out of 10. That's a pretty good answer. And if you were asked that question, that would be a great answer. But it made me think, what if they had dug deeper? And what if they had said to you or to Virginia, oh, you believe the gospel of Jesus. So you believe that you need to know Jesus in order to have eternal life. And you would say, yes, that's true. What if they said to you, okay, that's great about eternal life, but how is your gospel that you believe, how is it good news for this life? Like, I understand that it's sort of your ticket to heaven, but what difference does it make now? Is it about the afterlife or this life? Is it about later or is it about now? And I find in this day and age, a lot of people actually have that question. A lot of people who aren't Christians aren't interested in Christianity because they think the spiritual beliefs that we have as believers uh, aren't really relevant to our lives. In other words, look at all the problems in the world. Look at all the divisions between people. Look at all the people who are struggling with their, the, what, what they think about themselves. How does your gospel help people now? And I find a lot of times as Christians we have a hard time answering because we've been told that the gospel is sort of the line we cross in order to get eternal life, but we haven't really learned how the gospel is a line that runs through the entire of this life. The gospel does tell us that through knowing Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, we gain eternal life. And God becomes our Father now. And we're filled with the Holy Spirit now. But a lot of times we don't know what the gospel's implications are for this life. The gospel does assure us of eternal life, but it also empowers this life. It also dramatically changes how you live your life now. Not on the other side of eternity, but on this side of eternity. Today we're going to talk about the gospel, good news for this life. And I have three things that I want to talk about. I want to talk about um, the mirror you look in. And when you look in a mirror, you're looking at yourself and you're analyzing yourself, you're judging yourself, you're trying to figure out who you are. You're wrestling with your identity. And we're going to talk about how the gospel changes how we view ourselves even in the mirror. But then also we have a table up here, and the table represents um, who you might sit down for a meal with. Because when we begin to understand the gospel, it really changes who we fellowship with, who we have friendships with, and who we will ultimately share our lives with. That's the table.
But then the shoes on the table represent all the different ways we walk through this life. You've, you've heard it said, walk a mile in my shoes. Well, the truth is all of us wear various kinds of shoes as we walk through life. We have our, our, our work shoes and we have our play shoes. And not only that, but we have all these different roles that we walk through as husbands and wives and friends and business people. And we have all these different things that we do through this life. And so not only is the gospel going to empower how we see ourselves in the mirror and who we sit down to eat with, but also how we walk through this life whatever part of life we're walking through. In our text for today, we're continuing this issue, this discussion that's happened around cleanness, around who is a more clean Christian. Is it the Jews or the Gentiles? And in our text, what we've been seeing is that there was this teaching that the Gentiles come to Jesus through believing in Jesus But the Jews believed that the Gentiles also needed to follow the Jewish law and the Jewish culture and the Jewish ceremonies in order to really be clean before God, in order to really be accepted by him. And the Jews believed that the mark of being part of God's people was circumcision. They believed that the way to approach God and cleanse yourself up did rely on these ceremonies of washing your hands, in eating certain foods. Otherwise, you were unclean. But Paul is arguing throughout this letter that no, it's not about adopting Jewish culture. It's not about adopting the Jewish Old Testament laws. It's only about Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ, with your faith in him, that is the mark of a true believer. And you no longer need to wash your hands before worshiping or before eating or eat certain foods or not eat certain foods because it is the blood of Jesus that fully cleanses you and makes you acceptable to God. So this is settled, and they believe this. The apostles teach this, both the apostles in Jerusalem and Paul himself. They teach this, and they believe this until Peter doesn't, until Peter, the apostle Cephas, changes his tune. And what happens is Peter comes to Antioch where Paul is ministering to both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Peter comes to Antioch and these other people come from Jerusalem following Peter there. And what they see in Antioch kind of shocks them. Jewish Christians sitting down with Gentile Christians and eating together. And all of a sudden, this little alarm bell goes off in their minds, and they say, okay, we understand the whole Jesus thing, but if these Gentile Christians really want to be accepted by God and really claim before him, they do, in fact, need to take on the Jewish customs. They do need to wash their hands. They do need to eat kosher food. They do need to become circumcised. And these people who believe that begin whispering in Peter's ear, Peter This is what we should do as good Jews who are following God. And after a while, Peter begins to bend to the pressure and withdraws from the Gentile Christians. He stops eating with them. And this isn't like just, hey, I want to eat with someone different at the lunch table who I want to have a conversation with. To withhold eating with someone was a rejection of them as a person. It was deeply personal in the ancient world. And so when Peter refuses to eat with them, he is rejecting them as people, people who also believe in Jesus. 
Peter bows to the pressure, and he ends up making two significant errors when he refuses fellowship with those believers. What he's saying by his rejection is that Jewish culture and Jewish custom and Jewish tradition is superior. This is what really is the right way, and we're going to require that these Gentile Christians who fully believe in Jesus Christ put on these Jewish cultural badges of circumcision, of hand washing, of kosher eating. They need to become like us in order to be with us. And so Peter adopts this attitude of a superiority. Do we ever do that in the church? You know, as Christians, we are very different from each other. Jesus came for the nations, from people from all tribes and tongues and people groups and all different socioeconomic brackets. And we, we come together, but do we accept each other because of Jesus or do we require each other to change in order to be fully accepted? Do we require black Christians to talk like white Christians before we will fellowship with them? Do we require white Christians to become less white before we will share life with them? Do we require Latino believers who are the beloved of the Lord to become less Latino in their cultural expressions before we give them the love that Jesus gives to them? When we do, it's a grievous error because what we're saying is, I will give you fellowship if you become like me. And when we say that, we're falling into this air of thinking that our culture, our background, our ethnicity, whatever, is superior. And Peter makes that air, and it's an even deeper air that Peter makes, because it's not just about his cultural superiority. It's also about the other people's acceptability to God. Because what he's saying is, if I can't give you love, if I will not sit down with you at the table, and you're not acceptable to me then you're not acceptable to God. And so you have to become like me and follow the Jewish customs and the Jewish law because that's what God would really want from you. So he's not just making an error of superiority, but an error of acceptability. You're only acceptable to God if you do the Jewish law. And all of a sudden, just from Peter backing away from fellowship, he has turned Christianity into something we do instead of something that Jesus has done for us. Why? Well, Paul says that it's very serious. Peter has deviated from the truth of the gospel. One, because he is afraid of these people who came from Jerusalem and began whispering in his ear. He's afraid of what they'll say about him if he says, no, it's Jesus alone. But then secondly, he's just plain hypocritical. Paul says that Peter was a hypocrite in doing this because he himself was Jewish but didn't always follow the Jewish customs and the Jewish laws. But he required the Gentiles to live like Jews. So Peter says, listen, or Paul says, listen, Peter, how can you as a Jew not live like a Jew but instead live like a Gentile but then require the Gentiles to live like a Jew? It's just plain hypocrisy. Why? Why was Peter afraid? Why was he that hypocritical? Well, every one of us is searching for an identity in this life. 
Everyone is sort of searching for something to wrap who we are around. Every one of us is looking in the mirror going, who am I? What makes me me? What gives me worth and value as a human being? What makes me ultimately acceptable? And that key word, ultimate, is important. We're always looking for the deepest part of who we are. We're always going, who am I? What gives me ultimate worth? What is my ultimate identity? And because we're asking that question, we often put our identity, our ultimate identity, in things that we cannot control that end up controlling us. We look for our ultimate identity in our past. We look for our ultimate identity in our present accomplishments. We look for our ultimate identity in our political affiliations, in our skin color, our cultural background, our nationality. We look for our ultimate identity in things that we can't control and end up controlling us. Because if you put your ultimate identity in something like the past, you will either be overcome with shame by your failures or pride by what you did right. If you put your ultimate identity in your present accomplishments, you are on a never-ending treadmill to continue to accomplish more to prove to yourself and other people that you're worthy. If you put your ultimate identity in your politics, then every November you will either be crushed or incredibly arrogant. If you put your ultimate identity in your ethnicity or your culture or your background or your nationality, then you're giving everyone else permission to tell you who you are. One time uh, I've had some friends that tell me, hey, bro, you, you look really white. And I was like, are you just figuring this out now? Like, <laughs> I've known this. I've known I'm white. Um, and if my ultimate identity is in that, then I have, all of a sudden I have something to prove. If you've ever had someone tell you you're too this or not enough that, all of a sudden, if your ultimate identity is in that, you have to prove something to yourself and to them. We put our deepest identity in things that we cannot control, and if we do that, those things end up controlling us when we look in the mirror. We look in the mirror trying to prove something to ourselves about our worth and about who we are. And it seems that's what Peter has done. Peter's deepest identity was not in what Jesus said about him, but was in his Jewishness. So as soon as these people come and begin challenging him, are, are you really a good Jew, Peter? Aren't you going to require that these Gentile Christians be circumcised and wash their hands and eat the right food? All of a sudden, Peter looks in the mirror and he goes, am I a good Jew? Well, to be a good Jew, I must separate myself from these Gentile believers. And rather than seeing his identity in who Jesus is, he sees his identity in his Jewishness. See, all of us have this desire to have a rightness about our life, a worthiness about our life. And what ends up happening is we're controlled by other people's perceptions of us or even our own perceptions of ourselves. And then we're living our life to prove ourselves to someone out there or prove our life to ourselves. In our identity, when we give someone else permission to define it, or even when we define it, our identity is always at risk. It can always be changed. It's always dependent on how you view yourself in the mirror or how someone else 
views you through their lenses. And then you will live your life trying to prove yourself. You will live your life trying to justify yourself. And what Paul tells us is that there's something so much more significant for the Christian to find his identity or her identity in. There's an ultimate identity that we find ourselves in. It's not in anything even about us, but what Jesus has done for us. In verses 15 and 16, Paul says this, we are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And yet because we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus, even we ourselves have believed in Christ Jesus. This was so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. Uh, Paul was a Jew of Jews. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a, a Pharisee of the tribe of Benjamin. But as he began to follow the Jewish law that God had given them, he realized that he was unable to follow the law. And even as he put his identity in his Jewishness and following Jewish customs and following the Jewish law, he realized that he was not able to follow the law. By following God's standard for the Old Testament Jews, he realized he could not follow God's Old Testament standard. He fell short. And so there was no point in putting his ultimate identity in those things because he couldn't control it. He couldn't fulfill it. But what he says is as a Jew, he has decided to put his ultimate identity not in his Jewishness or his ability to fulfill the Jewish law, but in what Jesus has done for him. The fact that he's justified. And the fact that in Christ, he is declared righteous before God. There's a great exchange that happens for every believer. And most of us only know about half of this great exchange. When Jesus went on the cross, he became sin for us. Our record of sin was transferred onto him, and the wrath of God was poured out on him for our sin instead of on us. That is one part of the exchange. But the second part of the exchange is that his perfect record of righteousness for fulfilling all the law, for perfectly loving God and loving his neighbor, Jesus, who was sinless and obeyed the law perfectly, his record is transferred onto us. Our sin is transferred onto him. His righteous record is transferred onto us. And that is what Paul means by justified. Our guilt is on Christ. His righteous record is over us. We are declared righteous because we are given Jesus' right standing before God. That is what Paul means when he says justified. What that means for the Christian is that your position before God is not just forgiven and now you have to prove yourself. No, you are forgiven because of what Christ has done And when God sees you, he sees his son, Jesus. Not because of anything you've done or haven't done, but because Jesus' record has been transferred onto you. You are declared righteous. 
Now I know you all, and you know me, and none of us is righteous on our own. But that's the beauty of what Christ has done for us. Our standing before God isn't just forgiven and then somehow we prove ourselves to him. No, our standing with God is secure because Jesus' righteous record is declared over us. And in the deepest part of you, that's how God sees you. It's not just something imaginary. This is God's perspective on the Christian. And to him, this is your identity. You are righteous. You are acceptable. Therefore, you do not have to prove your worth to God. Your deepest identity comes from being in Jesus Christ. It is permanent and unshifting because he's done it for you. In other words, there's nothing you can do to change it, make it better, or make it worse. It is a received identity from Jesus. In other words, it's not earned by you, so you can't lose it. So you don't have to spend your life trying to find your ultimate place because Jesus gave you his place before God. Your rightness and your worth doesn't come from your acceptability or your sense of living your life the right way, but from Jesus declaring you righteous in the presence of God. And what that means is when you and I look in the mirror, we don't have to look in the mirror trying to assemble some sort of identity of who we ultimately are. Who we ultimately are is secured by what Jesus has done for you and me. Forgiven and justified before an almighty, holy God. We no longer have to prove something to ourselves because what the gospel says is that we're all complete failures, but we're forgiven and made righteous. And therefore, if our identity is secure, we have nothing to prove to ourselves or to other people. So we don't have to reject people. We don't have to look down on other people. If our worth and acceptability isn't based on what we've done, then neither is theirs. See, the Christian has a totally different experience when they look in the mirror and they ask questions about who they are. Because who you ultimately are is unbelievably secure in Jesus Christ before an almighty God. And what that does, as you look in the mirror and you see your identity through Jesus Christ, it changes the table. Most people share a table, share friendships, share fellowships, share meals, share life with someone that's like them. With people that are, have things in common with them. That people come from their background or from their socioeconomic bracket. But what Paul's saying is that when he begins to understand his identity that's ultimately in Jesus Christ, he puts to death everything else as his ultimate identity. In verse 19 and 20, he says this, For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul tried to find his identity in the Jewish law, but he couldn't fulfill the law, so he died to that as his primary identity. And he decided to place his ultimate identity in Jesus Christ. 
And in Jesus Christ, he's acceptable before God. He's justified. He's worthy. He's fully alive. He's still himself. He's still Paul, the Jew, who loves the law and who's passionate about Old Testament customs. But those things are no longer his ultimate identity. His ultimate identity is found in Jesus Christ. So although he loves the law, what's more important is that Jesus loves him. Although he loves giving himself over to the Old Testament customs, what's more important is that Jesus gave himself for him. So when Paul looks in the mirror, Paul sees Paul in Christ, but then when he looks at other people, he sees Chad in Christ. He sees Philip in Christ. He sees Gordon in Christ. Just as his own view of himself has changed in Christ, he sees other people through Christ. And what that does is that takes the superiority out of his lenses. It takes that idea that you're more acceptable to God based on something you do out of his view. And that's what the gospel calls us to do. And that's why Paul uses such strong language about Peter separating from the table. He says, it's a deviation from the gospel. You're walking away from the gospel when you cut fellowship off based on something external. I mean, this is unbelievably drastic and yet super common in our world. Our world makes decisions based on things that are secondary identities. If you think back in our country's history, during the slavery era, white people were allowed to sit in churches on the ground floor and black people were forced to sit in the balcony. Why? Because they chose to make a secondary thing the defining characteristic rather than to see each other in Jesus Christ. And if the people, if white people had chosen to see their black brothers and sisters through the lens of Christ, they would have invited them out of the balconies and into the pews, which would ultimately have led them to unleash the shackles and invite them to the table. It is drastic when we ignore this reality, when we make anything secondary the defining mark of someone else rather than their faith in Jesus. Listen, there are important things that we have to discuss as Christians. Political affiliations, what it means to be woke to the injustices in our country, cultural backgrounds and skin color, all of these things are important to discuss But as soon as we make them our own primary identity or someone else's primary identity, we will inevitably fall into superiority and look at others as less acceptable to God than ourselves. And what that will lead to is a very small table of fellowship in your life. A very small table of who you'll share your life with. You'll look for people who agree with you, who look like you, who act like you rather than for brothers and sisters who know Jesus as well. But Pastor John, isn't pursuing justice important? Yeah, it is important. But pursuing justice is not your ultimate identity. Pursuing justice is not your ultimate identity. Jesus is, 
And if you're pursuing justice and that becomes your ultimate identity, you will be overcome by a sense of superiority even as you pursue justice. And that will either destroy you or destroy the relationships around you. See, that, that's the irony about making anything that's a secondary identity a primary identity. Even as we talk about justice, even as people fight for equality, if that fight becomes your deepest identity, you will be overcome by a sense of superiority that you get it and others don't. And that sense of superiority is the very thing that caused inequality in the first place. Christians are called to something so radically different. We're not called to give up who we are. We are who we are. From our backgrounds, we have our skin colors, we talk differently, we have different size bank accounts, and yet none of those things are ultimate. Our identity is ultimately in Jesus Christ. Probably the lowest watched NFL game of the year is the Pro Bowl. And the Pro Bowl happens the week before the Super Bowl. If you can put that slide up. And what happens in the Pro Bowl is that teams elect their all-stars and they go and the best players on each team go to the, to the Pro Bowl game and play. And they each bring their own helmet, right? So the Miami Dolphin players bring their Miami Dolphin helmet. And the 49ers bring their 49ers helmet. And the Ravens bring their Ravens helmet. But once they get to the game, they put their helmet on and they put on a common jersey together, white or gray. For that game, they're not asked to forget who they are or the experiences that they've had. In fact, several players from each team go together, and you can imagine that they already have camaraderie coming from the Dolphins together or coming from the Chiefs together. But for that game, their deepest identity is found not in the helmet, but in the jersey, that common jersey. I mean, you can imagine what would happen if they said, no, the helmet's more important. So the Dolphins quarterback, if our quarterback were able to go to the All-Star game and he, he were only to pass the ball to Dolphins players, it wouldn't work. Because the helmet is not the deepest identity for that game the jersey is. And at the very same time, they're not asked to stop being who their helmet says that they are. They come as Dolphin players to play together as All-Stars. And it's something similar for the body of Christ. When we come together, our deepest identity is that we have put on Christ together. And yet at the very same time, we're not asked to stop being who we are. We're not asked to stop, uh, we're not asked to forget the culture that we're from. We're not asked to stop thinking about the skin color that we, that we have. We're not asked to think, uh, not think about anything else that we think defines us. What we are asked to do is to see that our ultimate identity is in the jersey. It's in Jesus, not our helmet. See, people say that Christianity is not relevant for today. It's only about eternal life. The problem is not with the gospel. The problem is that we actually have not put the gospel to work in our lives. We haven't owned it on a deep enough level so that we look at ourselves in the mirror through the lens of the gospel. We haven't actually thought about our tables of fellowship through the lens of the gospel. The problem is not that the gospel is irrelevant to our life. The problem is that we haven't put it to work in our lives. 
to see ourselves through the lens of Christ and to invite other people into fellowship with us based not on something secondary, but based on the fact that they're in Christ just like we are. And that's exactly why Paul challenges Peter. What's interesting, when Paul challenges Peter, he doesn't challenge him for being racist. He doesn't even bring up the great doctrine of the image of God. Peter, you're creating the image of God, and so are these Gentiles. You should treat them with dignity and respect. All that's true. What Paul points Peter to is the gospel. It's the gospel. In other words, the gospel is incredibly irrelevant for this situation where Peter rejects the Gentiles. In verse 214, Paul writes that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel in the CSB. In the ESV, he says, their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. In the NIV, it says they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. And that word that's capitalized there in the Greek is orthopodeo. Ortho, we know from the word orthodoxy or straight, correct teaching. Podio, podiatry, feet. Peter is not straight walking according to the gospel. See, what Paul's getting at is that the gospel is not just an entry point to the Christian life, but the reference point for all of life. Whatever part of life you're walking in, there is a gospel reference point for that life. Whatever shoes you're wearing, the gospel isn't just a line we cross to get into eternity. It is a reference point for everything in this life. We've already talked about our identity, our fellowship, but think about all the other places that the gospel becomes a reference point where we're called to orthopodio in line with the truth of the gospel. Our marriages. Paul says in the book of Ephesians that the reference point for marriage is Jesus' sacrifice for the church and the church is coming under Jesus' love. The reference point for marriage is what Jesus has done for us in the gospel, where both people in the marriage make the other person the most important person, just like Jesus has done for us and we do to him. In our citizenship and what we find pride in and with our nationality. Paul writes in the book of Philippians that because of what Jesus has done, we have a secure position in heaven. Our citizenship is ultimately in heaven. Our sense of patriotism must come under the fact that our ultimate identity is found through the gospel, our citizenship being in heaven. You think about our sexuality, the way we're told about to think about sexuality in our culture now is that each of our bodies has these desires that we must follow. Yet Jesus gave up what his body desired in order to die on the cross for you. And he so has a claim on your body that when you die and you're lowered into a grave, that's not the final word. He will raise your body to new life. And so Paul writes that your body is not your own, it's his. See, even with our sexuality, we're called to bring it in line with the truth of the gospel. We could go on and on about your career and your bank account. Everything has a reference point in what Jesus has done for us and what the gospel says because 
the gospel isn't just a line you cross to ensure eternal life. Rather, it's a line that runs through and touches every part of our life. Our lives have been deeply affected and empowered by what Jesus has done in everything. And that's why the gospel is not just good news about the next life, but good news for this life. And that's why we celebrate this table. His life for you. Your identity is found ultimately in him. With Christ, you were crucified. And in his resurrection, you were brought to new life. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. In a similar way, he took the cup. And he said, this is the cup of the new covenant for the forgiveness of your sins. Take and drink. Friends, if you know Jesus from God's perspective, he sees Christ when he sees you. And that's why we take this table to remind ourselves and proclaim his death and resurrection until he comes back for us. To, again, renew our perspective that the gospel is our reference point for everything, and it ultimately defines who you are. I'm learning in my own life not to even think my own thoughts about myself, but to listen to more what Jesus says about me than I listen to what I say about myself. And that's what this table is for. If you're here again today because you need to renew your perspective in the gospel, if you need to find your identity again in Jesus Christ and him alone, this table's for you. doesn't matter if you're a member of New City. We want you to root in here. We'd love that. But it's not ultimately about a New City table. It's a Jesus table. And so if you want to find your identity afresh again in Jesus and what he's done for you in the simple gospel, this table's for you. But if that's not you, we, we don't, we're not here to judge you. We're not here to ask you to play church. We just ask you to stay in your seat and just pray and say, Jesus, if you're real, show yourself to me. Help me to find you by finding me. The way we're going to take the, the, the table today is representative of the fact that we share the table together. What we'll do is, if you can come around through this aisle, instead of taking it individually, we're going to ask like five to ten people just to form a semicircle right here. And we're going to serve you all together because of our open table of fellowship. It's not just about me and Jesus, it's about us and Jesus. Let me pray and then the table will be open. Lord Jesus, we thank you for what you have said about us, what you've done for us, and your shed blood on our behalf. Father, we pray that we would really be strengthened to root our identity in what you say about us. We pray for those who are struggling right now, Father. Would you meet them in their pain? Would you meet them in their searching? We thank you that you deeply love us and you gave yourself for us. In Jesus' name, amen. The table's now open. Just come forward and, and form a semicircle here and we'll serve you.